wouldn't it be great to know the future? Not the whole future, I reckon that would be a bit much, but just a little bit of the future. So, for example, you're down at the supermarket, wouldn't it be handy to know which queue was actually going to be going the fastest? Ahead of time, so you could jump in it. Or if you've got uh, young babies, wouldn't it be great to know how many times they were going to wake up that night so that you could know whether to stay up or go to bed early and try and get a bit of sleep? Or wouldn't it be great to know what was in an exam before you sat it? Now, I know there's ways to do that. It's called cheating. But wouldn't it be good if you could see the future? Or if you were a farmer right now in the drought... Wouldn't it be great to know for sure when a big rain was coming? When it would rain, how much it was going to rain? How good would that be? You'd know exactly how long your current feed would last. You'd know whether to sell stock or keep stock. You'd know exactly when to plant. How good would that be? Well, today we're thinking about knowing the future. Al talked about it a little bit in his kids' talk earlier. Not the checkout queue, not the rain, not the weather forecast, but your eternal future. God wants you to be sure, to be certain about your eternal future. And God wants you to be so sure about that that it will change the way you live right now. God wants you to be so sure about the future that you will be able to rejoice right now, whatever you're going through. That's what today's passage is all about. And given the world that we live in and the suffering that is in this world, it is a really good passage to be addressing and thinking about this morning. Now you can see the structure on your outline there if you have a look at it. Firstly, we are thinking about our secure future as followers of Jesus then the joy that brings us right now, then we come back to the future and think about how we can be sure, how we can be certain of the future. So firstly, if someone does trust Jesus, the faith we were thinking about two weeks ago, what is their future? Or verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's the past, we have peace with God, That's the present through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the future. It starts, though, doesn't it? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. That's a summary of what we've been thinking about for the last four or five weeks in Romans. We've been hearing the gospel The good news about what God has already done for us in Jesus. We've been thinking about how it's through faith alone that we're made right with God. And chapter 5 in Romans is now a big turning point. We've been thinking about how to get right with God. Now, from chapters 5 to 8, we're going to think about the difference that that makes in our lives. Right now, in day-to-day life. Now that we're made right with God, how is life different for us? And the first difference is this one in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now, we were at war with God. 
We saw that in Romans 1. People suppress the truth about God. They have dethroned God. They have made themselves God. And therefore, they are God's enemies. They are at war with God. Here we find out, now that we're justified with Jesus, we have peace with God. The war is over. There's harmony between you and God if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, when God says that we have peace with him here, This is not about how we feel. There are people in the world who might feel peaceful, but they're at war with God. And then there's people who might be at peace with God, but they feel anxious or they don't feel at peace. So our peace with God, it's not something that goes up and down each day depending on how we feel. No, this is about our position, our standing before God. Verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay, this is about how God views it. It's our standing, our legal standing before God. Tim, our second oldest son, he just turned 18 recently, uh, in the last year anyway, and when you turn 18, your legal status changes. You become an adult. And because of that, because your status has now changed, all kinds of things follow. So, for example, Tim could now register to vote. Tim got a letter from the bank saying that he didn't need to have a children's account linked to us anymore. He could have his own bank account. And very excitedly, he got his own debit card. There's other things that happen when you turn 18. Now, when you turn 18, you may wake up the next morning and feel completely different. You know, I'm an adult. Or you may wake up the next morning and feel no different. The point is not how you feel. The point is your status has changed. You are now legally an adult. And that has all kinds of implications and nothing can change that. You're an adult. Since we are justified through faith, our standing before God changes. And nothing can change that. This peace with God that we now have will carry on until the day that Jesus returns. And Paul says that's why we can have such confidence about the future. We're in a completely different position before God now. And so look at where he ends at the end of verse 2. We already looked at it earlier. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That there is talking about the day when Jesus returns and we see God in all his glory. Now, if you're here three weeks ago, back in Romans 3, Paul said we all fall short of the glory of God. God's glory means his, his everything, his power, his perfection, his purity, his grace, his goodness. We all fall short of that. Now, if we were still in that position before God, if that was our standing before God, we would be terrified of his glory. There would be nothing worse than coming face to face with a powerful, perfect God as his enemy. But we have peace with God now, which means we are actually looking forward to seeing God in all his glory. That will be a great day for us. That's our hope. That's what we live for. That's what we're looking forward to. That is our sure and secure future into all eternity, to be with God 
in his glory, in his goodness, and to share with him in that. But that's not life now, is it? Our life now is not full of glory. Life now is full of suffering and pain. That's where Paul goes in verse 3. Not only so, not only are we looking forward to that day, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. I find this interesting. So let's step back and think about what's happening in the book of Romans. For four chapters, Paul has been carefully, systematically laying out what Jesus did and why he had to do it, how we're made right with God. Now in chapter 5 and for the next four chapters, we're going to think about what it means to live as a Christian. Now that we are on the right side of God, what will this new life look like? We're only three verses in, three verses. And Paul starts to talk about suffering. We have peace with God, but we do not have peace with this world. This world is broken. This world is opposed to God. So if you're a Christian for more than about five minutes, you're going to have to deal with this issue. Why is there suffering in my life? What do we do with suffering? Now, some Christians deal with this issue by saying Christians don't have to suffer. Things like, if you have faith, you'll be healed. If you have enough faith, bad things won't happen. That's a lie. That's a dangerous lie because that actually undermines people's faith. That makes people think they don't have enough faith when something bad happens in their life. Paul here is talking to people who have faith, and he says they will suffer. If we have faith, we are justified. If we're justified, we have peace with God, and if we have peace with God, we can rejoice in our sufferings. So it's not that we will escape sufferings, It's not telling us to avoid sufferings. It's telling us that we can rejoice in our suffering. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Now, how does that work? The word suffering means the state of undergoing pain, distress or hardship. How do you rejoice in that, the state of undergoing pain? Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Okay, there's a bit of a chain reaction here. Firstly, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance just means the ability to stick at something, doesn't it? It means that you can suffer without giving up. So in other words, the more you suffer, the better you get at it. Now, you might think that's crazy. I think that's a bit crazy. If that was the only reason that we had to suffer so that we can get better at it, I don't want to get better at suffering. I'd prefer not to suffer. I'd prefer not to be good at it. But it's not just that suffering produces perseverance. No, let's read on. 
Perseverance produces character. This is changing something about us. When you go through stuff in your life that is hard as a Christian and you persevere in it, there's something about it that changes you. As you're tested, as your faith is put to the test, you come out the other end a different person. So the passage is not saying that we look for suffering. It's not even saying that suffering is good, but it is saying that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that God can use suffering and does use suffering to strengthen our hope, to make us look forward and long for the new creation even more. And Paul ends verse 5 by telling us, This is, in fact, the one thing that will not disappoint us in our suffering. Look at verse 5. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When tough things come your way, and they will, this is the one thing that will not disappoint you, putting your hope in God. So there's lots of things we can put our hope in, and uh, sometimes they might come through, but sometimes they may not. So when we're sick, we often put our hope in doctors, or we put our hope in a cure, and sometimes the doctors are able to give us the right medication to fix our sickness. Or we're in pain, and sickness, and some people go and put their, their hope in some kind of a faith healer to heal them. Or you're lonely and so you put your hope on finding the right partner, which sometimes works. Or you're in a bad marriage and you're putting your hope in the marriage getting better. The problem is, even though they might be things that we long for, they're not things that we can actually confidently put our hope in because all of those things can disappoint us. You might escape once or twice, but eventually something or someone that you put your hope in will disappoint you. But if your hope is in God, he will never disappoint you. Hope will not disappoint us because it is based on what God has already done in the past. In other words, we can be sure about our future because of what God has already done in the past. Have a look at verse 5 again. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, God by his Holy Spirit has showed us his love and he showed us his love in the death of his son. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in the last little bit of this chapter. See, rejoicing in our sufferings, it's a nice idea, but it only works if eternal life is real. If you're not sure about eternal life, it's not going to be a comfort to you to be thinking about eternal life when you're suffering. Because at best you'd be able to say, well, I might have it. So Paul ends this chapter talking about how we can know for certain that we have eternal life, no matter what we go through in this life. And there's two ways that we can know our future is certain. This is actually the longest part of the chapter, but we're going to skip through it because it's fairly complex. So on point three there, 
knowing our future is secure, you can see reason 1, verse 6 to 11, reason 2, verse 12 to 20. The first reason that our future is secure is this. How did God treat you when you were his enemy? How did God treat you when you hated him in the past? He poured out his love on you. He gave his son to die for you. Now, if that's how God treated you when you were his enemy, imagine how he's going to treat you now that your status has changed, now that you are his friend. That's the argument of verse 6 to 10. How does God treat his enemies? Verse 6. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. You know, people don't normally sacrifice their life for someone else. We know that because when it happens, it's all over the news, isn't it? And it's a wonderful thing. But usually when it happens, it's someone giving their life for someone that they love or someone who's good. You know, a man sacrifices himself for his wife on their honeymoon or, or for a child or something. It's rare, but sometimes it happens. And it's a great thing when it does. But do you see the difference here, verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Ungodly sinners. Jesus died for us when we were at our worst. And Paul's point is, if that's how God treats people who hate him, if that's how God treats his enemies, now that our status before God has changed, how do you think he'll treat us now? Paul looks back to the day when Jesus died and then he looks forward to the day when Jesus will return and he says, imagine how God's going to treat us when we finally arrive home as his friends. That is a day that we can be very confident about. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. This is talking about the day when Jesus returns. Verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, that's the first reason we can be absolutely sure of eternal life. It's because God has shown his love to us in the past when we were at our worst and that guarantees our future because we're now at peace with him. Imagine how wonderfully he'll treat us now. And then the second, ver- second reason Paul looks at in verse 12 to 20, 20, the second reason we have to be confident about our future. And it's similar. Paul's looking back to the cross, but this is a slightly different argument this time. He's basically saying here that Jesus is better than Adam. Jesus is more powerful than Adam. And I think he's saying that because we may look at ourselves, we may look at our sin, we may look at death, and we may be disillusioned and hopeless because as human beings we are a mess. We've made, we're in Adam. The mistakes that Adam made, we make. But Paul says whatever mess Adam made... 
Jesus can fix it up and did fix it up and more. And so in verse 12, he's looking about the, at the mess Adam made. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and Paul goes on to paint a, a very bad view of what Adam has done in our default state as humans. But then after a fairly complicated argument where he's comparing Adam with Jesus, he pops out in verse 17 about how great Jesus is. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. If you were to read through those verses, you're seeing that God is comparing, Paul is comparing Adam with Jesus. So Adam brought sin in verse 12. Jesus undoes that and he brings righteousness. He undoes our sin, verse 17. Adam brought condemnation in verse 16. In other words, we are declared wrong. But Jesus brings justification. We are declared right with God. Adam brought death in verse 12. Jesus brings eternal life in verse 21. Everything that would stop us from having eternal life because of sin that Adam brought into the world, Jesus has replaced And part of Paul's argument in there when he refers to Moses, if you want to read it later, is actually that the more you understand how bad things were because of Adam, and the law helps us realise that, it points to our sin, the more you understand how bad things are, the more you realise how much Jesus has done on the cross because he fixed it all. Each year... um, I take the kids to the Mudgee Field Days. Jill, Jill doesn't go. She tries to steer clear, clear of it. She hates it. But I love it. I just love, love going around and looking all the, at these inventions that we're never going to buy and they're too expensive. But the one thing that we seem to love and come home with, even though we've got a few of them already stocked up in the cupboard, are the magic pens. So I don't know if you've seen them, but they've got a whole range of coloured pens, blue, red, green, and you draw with them just and they look like a normal texter. They're actually a texter. And so you draw and you create a beautiful drawing with the magic pens, but then you take out what's called the magic pen, the white pen, and you draw over the top of all the other colours and every single colour that's already there changes. You know, so the red becomes yellow and the blue becomes, I don't know what it does. The interesting thing about the magic pens is the more colours that you draw with at the start, the more amazed you are when you bring out the magic pen and everything changes. That's a bit like what's happening here. The more we understand how wrong we were before God, the more we understand the terrible consequences of what Adam did and what we do, the more we see how wonderful God's grace is because it actually fixes up everything. Everything that Adam brought into this world, condemnation, sin and death, has been undone by Jesus. 
And put all that together, and Paul ends by talking about how confident we can be about eternal life. And it's a confidence that isn't based on what we do. It is based on what God has done in Jesus. It's based on God's love to us in Jesus that he demonstrated in the past. God wants you to know that you are at peace with him through Jesus. And he wants you to know that your future is absolutely sure and certain because of that. And then he wants you to look at what's hard in your life at the moment. What is that for you? What is painful in your life right at the moment? What causes you to be anxious? What causes you to be upset? What's hurting you? God wants you to take that and then he wants to remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever is going on, you can rejoice in it. He's not changing the definition of suffering. Suffering is still enduring pain. But he says in the midst of that, you can rejoice. And not just put up with it, not just persevere through it, but persevere in a way that makes your hope stronger. In other words, God will use it to strengthen your hope. Now, the issue of suffering is a big one. And we're only just touching on it briefly this morning. I'm not pretending that today has answered all your questions. In fact, Paul comes back to this issue in a bigger way in chapter 8. In three weeks, he's really going to deal with the issue of suffering in more depth there. But for today, God wants you to know that you can rejoice in whatever suffering you're going through. And the way to do that is to look back to the cross where God has poured out his love on you in Jesus and then look forward to his return where for you, your future is certain and secure and being certain of what he's done in the past and being certain of what he will do in the future, Paul says, we can rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we can know the future. Not all the future, but we can know what matters. Father, thank you that not because of anything we have done, otherwise our future would not be certain. Thank you that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can be sure of eternal life. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, which, who you have poured out into our hearts, we pray that you would make that future for us certain and secure. Father, we pray not only that we would know it in our heads, but in the day-to-day trouble of life, that your Spirit would prompt us of our secure future and that that would bring us real joy. Not just a superficial optimism or happiness, but a deep-seated joy 
knowing that one day we will see you face to face in all your glory and all the suffering of this world will be gone. So, Father, as we do suffer, please, as you promised to do in this passage, change us so that our hope would be more secure and more certain. And please give us joy as we struggle through life. Amen.